0: John chapter 12, the same text as last week. I had no intention of finishing, but we shall uh, finish this week, this section. John 12, verse 27. John 12, beginning in verse 27. We preached last week, verses 27 and 28. The text reads this way. Now is my soul troubled. What am I going to say? Am I going to pray, Father, save me or Father deliver me from this hour? Or but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, and, and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk, live while you have the light, lest... Darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness, he doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. It got dark real quick. Father, thank you for this text. I pray that Christ would be exalted, that we would see him rightly this morning uh, from these words. Holy Spirit, help us and apply these things as you see fit to apply them to each individual heart. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last week I said we did 27 and 28, and we have left off with it being about the glory He was glorified at the beginning of His ministry. He will be glorified again at the cross. And we saw that in verse 28. Now, we're on the second point of a four-point sermon. And we intend to finish it this morning and learn a few things along the way. The second point of this message is this. The confusion of the crowd. The confusion of the crowd. There's a substantial event that happens. Okay, so truth is done. There's an audible voice from heaven that is spoken to the sun on earth. This kind of thing doesn't happen every day. So a remarkable event it happens and there's a large crowd of people. Well, they're confused. And so this confusion runs through. We want to take a moment and look at this confusion. So turn your attention back to your Bible. Look at verse 29, verse 30, and look at verse 34. Those three verses show us the confusion of the crowd. Verse 29, so there's this crowd. I don't know how many, but there's a large number of people. They're standing there, and they heard. This is a true statement. The whole crowd hears. It's an audible public voice that goes out to the entire crowd. They hear it. And when they hear it, they make comment about the voice they heard. Now, their interpretation of this audible voice from heaven is, well, it must have thundered. Now this is not the first, this is maybe the first occurrence, but not the only occurrence. You find this also in the book of Acts, when Saul is on the Damascus Road and a voice speaks, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Some thought it thundered. For some reason there's confusion here between an audible, intelligent voice and a large sound, and so they say it thundered. Well, there's some others in the crowd that don't go with thunder. They recognize it's a voice and they say that an angel has spoken to him. So thunder or an angel, they're wrong on both accounts because God has spoken. All right, then Jesus answers their confusion and he says, look, this voice that you just heard, it's interesting. It's for your sake, not mine. Now that is interesting, is it not? The voice is for you and you don't even know what it said. It's for your sake, and you think it thundered. It's for your sake, and you think an angel spoke, but it's for them. We'll talk about that. And then glance over in verse 34 to finish up the confusion of the crowd. So the crowd answers him. This is right after he says he's going to die. And the crowd says this, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So from the Old Testament, they have taken scripture, they have heard taught, maybe they have read for themselves, and they have interpreted that scripture and they've come to the conclusion that the Messiah, when he comes, will not die, but will live forever. Now, what text did they get that from? So on their interpretation of the Old Testament text, we'll talk about in a moment, they ask this question, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? The phrase lifted up means he's got to die, he's already told us that. So how can you say this Son of Man is going to die and be lifted up? Because the Old Testament says He remains forever. How can you say that? Who is this Son of Man? So there's the confusion of the crowd. Now, as we work through these three verses, undoubtedly from our text we know this. There is a heavenly voice. God hath spoken audibly now just as a side note you may have heard someone say this i would come to the lord if he would just write it in the sky or if he would just speak audibly to me then i would believe no you wouldn't it happened right here and it happens in acts and people didn't believe if you won't believe a written word pray tell me why you think you're going to believe an audible word out of heaven because it's not going to contradict this written word so if you won't believe this book, you're not going to believe. And so they get this audible word, this voice from heaven. Now this has happened, this happens 3 times, does it not? This happens at his at his baptism. Audible voice, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Then you go to Matthew 17 and you see that it happens at the transfiguration. And you got Moses and Elijah, you got Peter, James and John, and he's transfigured before their very eyes, and there's this voice born from heaven that speaks in confirmation of the son. And then you have it here in our text in John 12 specifically pointing to the glorification of the son that's going to happen on the cross in about 6 days. So three occurrences in Scripture of a heavenly voice in regards to the sun here. The crowd, thunder. The crowd, an angel. But let's entertain this question in verse 30. Jesus himself says to the crowd, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. The question is, how can the voice be for their sake, When they don't understand the voice. Now this is, I gleaned this from some other people, uh, but putting it together, it helped me and maybe it will help you. Four things, just four things to help you with this answer. The voice was for the crowd's benefit. How so? Because Jesus said it was. But it does not mean that it was not a benefit to Jesus. Not saying he didn't benefit from it, but that specifically it was for their benefit. Another thought, strictly speaking, Jesus did not need a voice from heaven. He didn't need a voice from heaven. He was already resolved when he said this, Father, glorify your name. He's already made his decision. He's already resolved. He's already committed to the cause. So specifically, he really didn't need a voice for confirmation. Third thought on this. This one's good. This event, the disciples are present here too. This crowd is made up of disciples and all these other people, right? So like many other events in Jesus's life that they did not understand, later on, the event came back to mind and then it got put together and then they got the truth and the benefit from it. I think this is another case of that although they don't comprehend the voice, later on, this event's going to come back to their mind and they go, ah, that's what God was doing. That's what He was saying to the Son. Oh, this is the one. They'll put the pieces together and it will benefit their soul. But I'll give you a fourth thought on how it could benefit them. And that is this. A voice understood are not understood, that comes audibly from heaven should get your attention. It should have let them know something remarkable is happening before us right now. It was for, And here's the thing, just because it's for their benefit doesn't mean they receive the benefit. Case in point, right now I'm trying to preach this text... For your benefit. That doesn't mean you're benefiting. If you don't believe it, and you don't receive it, it just becomes a source of judgment. You see, it's for your benefit. You see, or I can say, I can insert the catechism idea here. I write a catechism, write questions and answers, I give you memory verses for your benefit. But nobody knows the memory verse, at least to speak it out loud. I can't make you benefit from it, but it's for your benefit. This voice is for their benefit. They just don't receive the benefit of it because they reject the voice that is born. Now, next thing, move over to verse 34. This is where the crowd has misinterpreted the law. Now, you'll need your Bibles for this section, and we'll turn, hopefully, in order. But what text they're referring to is disputed, and nobody has an answer. So I'm going to give you several texts, that they possibly, and maybe they're referring to all of them, this is what they've heard from the law, and they've interpreted that the Christ will remain forever. So let's put them in uh, at least biblical order. Start in your Bibles in the book of Psalm. Start in your Bible in the book of Psalm. And we'll work through the Old Testament, just giving you the highlight of a few verses that may have been upon their minds. We'll start in Psalm 72. It's this church, and so this is when you should have a Bible and should be able to look up references. Psalm 72, verse 17. That's why I like preaching in Mexico, by the way. You can't ever just preach and use a verse off the cuff. When you refer to a verse, everybody's turning to it. You have to wait till they get there. All right, 72, 17. May his name endure forever. Okay. Psalm eighty nine thirty five. His name is going to endure forever. Psalm eighty nine, verse thirty five. Think about what the psalmist says here. Eighty nine thirty five. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. Is God speaking? I'm not going to lie. His offspring shall endure forever let that sink in so your christ hasn't come he hasn't died on the cross he hasn't been resurrected you've read verses like this and god said his son's going to come and he's going to endure forever and he says he will not lie his throne as long as the sun before me like the moon it shall be established forever a faithful witness in the skies can you at least see that somebody could read this verse and say when the Christ comes, he's going to set up his throne, he's going to reign and rule forever, and there's no way he's going to die. That's the way they interpreted that verse. Now, go to Psalm 110. Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. God doesn't change, doesn't vacillate between opinions here. He's not going to change his mind. What's he going to do? He says in regards to the Christ, you are the priest forever. They're accustomed to priests dying and another coming after, and another coming after. Well, when the Christ comes and he's our priest, he's going to endure forever. Which is true, but he's going to do so via death and resurrection. They can't see that. They can't see the death part. Now, go to, uh, let's see, Isaiah. Go to Isaiah. There's about three more of these. Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 7. Isaiah 9, 7. So then, not only have they read the psalm, they're reading the prophet Isaiah. Or they're hearing the prophet Isaiah read, maybe in the synagogue. And they read verse 7. Of the increase of his government. And we're talking about the Messiah the Christ, of the increase of his government of peace, there's not going to be an end. Think about it. You're under Roman oppression. The Messiah is going to come in. He's going to dethrone Rome. He's going to set up his kingdom. And there's not going to be an end to his kingdom. There's no room in that for a Messiah who dies. They can't comprehend it. Now, go to the book of Ezekiel. Two more. Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel 37 and verse 25. 37, 25, Ezekiel says, Then I mean, they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David my servant, reference to the coming Messiah, the offspring of David, David my servant, shall be their prince forever. This Messiah is going to come, and all these children are going to dwell in this land, and Christ is going to rule over them forever. What do you mean the Son of Man must be lifted up? What do you mean He must die? To them, it makes no sense. One more. Go to the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel, chapter 7. You'll know the text. You've read it a hundred times before. Even the heading of that section says the Son of Man is given dominion. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And look what was given to him. And to him was given dominion. And glory and the kingdom that all peoples all nations all languages should serve him his dominion is well it's an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed so if you're using your minds just piece this together you're a Jew He hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't been resurrected. You don't have privy to seeing that done. And they're taking these texts they've been taught all of their life, and they've come to this conclusion that this man standing before them has lost his mind because the Messiah we're waiting on is not going to die. That makes no sense. They're saying, we believe the Bible. We believe the law of God, and it has no room for a dead Christ. You don't understand. What do you mean? Who is this Son of Man? We do not get it. They expected an eternal triumph. A kingdom to be set up and established to rule and reign over the earth for all time. Now we know, I hope you know, all of this is true. It's an eternal kingdom. He eternally reigns. He's forever the priest. All of those things are true, but it comes via death and resurrection. Alright, so that's their confusion. That's the answer is in Christ and Him teaching them about His resurrection. So here's Christ clarifying this prophecy. Verse 31. Turn your attention in your Bibles to 31 through 33. So we back up and we look at the clarification of what Jesus says. Now notice the immediacy of all of this. You remember back in verse 20. Now, among those who came up to worship were some Greeks. Now is my hour. Immediacy. Now there's judgment. Now there's judgment. Because this thing's going to be finalized, and I'm going to take Satan and I'm going to kick him out. I'm going to throw him down, and I will rule over all things. Now's the judgment. It's coming because of what I'm about to do upon this Calvary's tree. So the judgment, now this is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be ekbalo, thrown out, cast out? And I, notice, it's not if, it's when. Not if I get lifted up, like it's like a potentiality, like there's a 50-50 chance that I'm going to make it. No, the Son of God says when I'm lifted up. Do note that in the text, before crucifixion, before death, he's already saying confidently and assuredly that when I'm lifted up, because he knows that he will not remain dead, because he will not allow the Holy One to see corruption. Confidence of our Savior, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll do something. I'm going to draw all people to myself. He said this, if you don't understand lifted up, You don't understand what that phrase means? 33 makes it clear. He said this because he's showing by what kind of death he was going to die. It was very clear there. The judgment of the world includes two things in this passage. Number one, the evil one will be removed. Newsflash, the devil is not going to win. One little word, our hymn book says, shall fail him. One thing is done is the evil one is kicked out. So all the pressures and all the wickedness of this world in which we live and all the immorality and everything that goes on, just understand this. It's not over. The evil one has been cast out, and he does not have the last word. The second thing that is accomplished in the judgment of the world is the redemption of the chosen ones. He will redeem his people. He will draw them to himself via his death and resurrection it will happen i just want you to feel the certainty because we live in the uncertainty of religion the uncertainty of our world we want to know if something's going to happen can something happen jesus doesn't work this way he's the second person of the godhead i will draw them they will come to me i will establish a kingdom i will reign and all of this will be done this is the way our savior talks because he is our savior he is god in human flesh It's going to force out the devil is a future tense it's going to happen at the cross let me say one statement about that the cross event in the future at this point the cross event will render all attempts to halt redemption as null and void if christ goes to the cross and dies and is resurrected somebody's redeemed so the cross and the resurrection will null all attempts to cancel redemption. The devil doesn't want anybody redeemed, but yet the cross is going to ensure that the redeemed are redeemed. It's certain. I'll remind you of a couple of texts. When I said, when I am lifted up, not if. In the book of John, you can refer there if you like. Be very quick, just two verses or so. John 3.14, Moses, as when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He said that in 3.14. He also says it in John 8.28, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, it's a certainty. This is not happenstance. This is not chance. Jesus doesn't go to the cross and flip a coin and say, well, if it's heads, I come out alive. If it's tails, I stay dead. None of this jargon with Christ. I'm going here. I'm laying down my life there. They're going to bury me in that cave. And on the third day, you can come check. But there won't be a stone in front of it. And there won't be no body in it because I will be lifted up. And when I'm lifted up, I'm going to redeem everybody I set out to redeem. It's going to happen. You can take it to the bank. You can stake your whole life on it. My redemption is 100% guaranteed. And the devil says, I don't like it. You can't do anything about it. Now, I do want to take just a moment, I've got enough time to at least uh, draw attention to this word. Draw attention. I did that on purpose because the word is draw. Verse 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw. Not I might draw, not I could draw. I just want you to feel the certainty of the Savior. He is saying, you can quibble about theology all you like. You can do that on your own time. But Jesus unmistakably says this. When I'm lifted up, this is what I will do. I will draw. Interesting thing about this word draw, to drag, to pull by force, often implying resistance, to drag, to lead by force. Now, Wade over here thinks he's a fisherman. He got out fished by some ladies this past weekend. And, uh, and then we got Jack, who thinks he's a fisherman as well. They understand this word. When you cast the bait out, does the bait swim back to the boat? No, you draw it back by reeling the reel. That's the way it works. And so you have the authority, the power to draw the bait back to you. You don't throw it out there and say, man, I hope that bait comes back to me. Maybe it'll float this way. You only do that if you don't know how to tie a knot. But this word is interesting draw john 6 44 no one comes to me no one not one soul will come to me unless the father draws him it's the only way because man doesn't have the ability john 18 10 (laughs) simon peter he had a sword it was sheathed and he drew it out that's the word the sword didn't leap out on its own free will he grabbed a hold of the sword and it out that's what it means to draw. Or in John 21, 6, Jesus said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat, you'll find some. They cast it, and they weren't able to haul. They weren't able to draw it. It was too heavy for them. And then Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net to shore, just kind of drug it to the shore in order to get the fish, and they counted the fish, and there was 153 of them. And then in Acts sixteen nineteen, this word is used again. But when her owners saw their hope of gain was gone, they seized, grabbed a hold of Paul and Silas, got a hold of them with a firm grip, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. That's the word. And then you get it again in James chapter 2, verse 6. You've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppose, oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? You said, Why are you telling me how this word is used in all these circumstances? Because I want you to understand that that's this word. And that he says that when he's lifted up, he says, I, Jesus is the subject, and the action is draw. And what's he going to draw? He's going to draw all people to himself. It's going to happen. He's going to draw those that He is going to redeem to Himself, and they're going to be saved. How so? By the effective work of the atonement of Christ on the cross, He will effectively redeem all the Father has given Him. Certainty of the action, clarity of the application, and the confidence of His purpose to redeem. Matthew chapter one says what? You shall, name his, you shall call His name Jesus. And He will save. Who? His people from what? Their sin. The confidence at birth. The confidence at death. I'm trying to tell you churches. church, you can trust the words of Christ. You can believe it when He says, as you saw Him go, so how he returned. And behold, the Lord is coming quickly. You can stake. Now, we move to the council of the son. So you have this wrestling he had in prayer. You have the confusion of the crowd. He clarifies what's going to happen here. His death does not mean he's not going to reign forever. His death does not mean he's not going to be able somehow to redeem those. He is to redeem and set up his kingdom. And now we have counsel. The Lord offers this counsel to the crowd that's confused. After all of these things are related before them, he says, here's my counsel to you. You all know, ready for counsel? Not my counsel, but Jesus' counsel. He says, the light. Now I wonder what he's referring to. I, I believe if we read earlier in John, he'd say something like this, Ego I me, these famous I am statements. I am the light. And now he says to this confused crowd, you imagine Jesus standing in the midst of 20,000 people. And he says, I am the light. He says, the light is right in your midst for a little while. Just for a little bit. Think about it. When the Word of God is preached, when the Gospel is proclaimed, the light is among you. Think about that in street evangelism. Think about it at the clinic. Think about it out in the world. When the gospel is brought forth, the light is amongst them. And here, physically embodied in the person of Christ, the light is among them for a little while. Walk, live, respond, at the course of your life while you have light. Do you perceive the warning here? There's coming a time for you possibly that you won't have light. You understand that the light switch can be turned off. And as soon as it's turned off, it's dark. You you have to respond to Christ now. While you have light. Meaning you might not have it this afternoon. You may not ever have light again. Ever. Ever. There's no guarantee that Monday morning you'll ever have light. There's no guarantee you'll ever hear the gospel again. There's no guarantee that you'll ever be brought before the Word of God again. You could trip today and fall on your head and go into a comatose state and never be able to read, hear, or understand ever again. You could have the Spirit of the living God depart from you and you're in the dark whether you want to be or not. You have no guarantee. So you must take the opportunity and seize it. You better respond while you have light because it's only here for a little while. Lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. You better walk while you have light, you better believe in the light. This is the only way that you can become sons of light. Now hang on to the last part of that verse for in a moment. The light shines in the darkness. Remember John 1 verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend. Or the darkness does not overcome depending on your translation. It's an interesting thought. The word... Katalambano has four definitions, this word for overcome, overtake. To win something, like Paul in Corinthians, he runs to win or obtain a prize. Same thing in Philippians and Romans, he writes this way, to do something to obtain something, to gain control of someone through pursuit, to catch up with someone and seize them. come, Come out of nowhere and grab a hold of somebody overtake them that word is especially used in reference to darkness it, maybe it relate to some of you at least but you, you ever got caught out somewhere in the woods hunting or you're out especially like in colorado elk hunting and you get over the wrong side of the mountain and, and you, you're like well i'll get back eventually but the sun sets and darkness just kind of seizes you and all of a sudden you're like i don't know how to get home It's like all of your powers and all of your abilities, you look at your accomplishments, you can't see anything because the the darkness just came up and just came so quickly. That's what he's talking about here surprise, catch you. It's like you're in a a room that has no windows and you're working on something and, and somebody comes in and they turn off the light and you can't see anything. It's like, hey, turn on the light. It seizes. I'm trying to tell you this stuff happens every Sunday globally. It happens in this church. The light is shining. What is your pastor telling you? I'm telling you that Christ died and was resurrected on the third day, and you ought to repent and believe Him and give Him your life right now. You ought to say, I believe Christ. You ought to stand in line saying, I want to be baptized and I want the whole world to know I belong to Jesus. God has privileged you. God has graciously given you this unfolding picture that you should believe on Christ. That's light. And if you don't believe right now, the darkness come just that quick. And what are you going to do when you're blind? Interesting in the book of John, is it not? Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Judas went out and immediately it was dark. And here, if you do not believe If you do not believe now while the light is amongst you, darkness will seize you. You have to get the irony here. You have that, and this is what happens. So he says this to this whole crowd. I don't know how many thousands are here, this whole crowd. He's standing right in their midst. Here I am. Believe. Walk in the light. Walk and follow me. Live your life in relation to me. He's like, now just give me a little liberty here, but let's just pretend it's the benediction. Now Jesus would never say this and never said this, but let's just give the benediction this way. So Jesus says to the crowd, bow your head, close your eyes, nobody looking around. Blake Gideon used to always say that. was funny. Bow your head, close your eyes, nobody looking around. And then he says, amen, and they look up, and he's gone. you look at the verse at the end of the verse 36 when jesus had said these things he departed and hid himself you connect that line back with verse 31 now is the judgment of the world what are you going to do when christ departs and hides himself If you won't believe the obvious truth of the gospel, you won't believe the obvious truths that are laid out in Scripture, that are laid before your very eyes on coffee tables all over the world, if you won't believe the Word of God, what are you going to do when He shuts the book on you? What are you going to do when He withdraws from you and you're left to yourself? You're all these people touting free will. What are you going to do when you're left to your free will? What are you going to choose? What are you going to do? You're blind. You can't see Christ. You can't understand the gospel. All you're going to choose is self and you're going to choose yourself all the way to hell. You must believe the gospel now while the light is among you. Conclusion is very short. In the context of judgment, John 12, verse 31. Listen carefully. It's very short. The world... Believes in, in the context of John 12, what's going on with Jesus? The world believes they're judging Jesus and passing sentence on Him. That's what they believe. But in reality, Jesus is judging them and giving them the guilty verdict of unbelief. Now, in regards to Satan, he believes he's casting out the Son of God. Right? He's going to destroy Him in death. But our text said the very opposite. That's not what's happening on the cross. On the cross, He's casting the devil out and destroying Him. That's what's actually happening. So today, this happens every Sunday, happening right now in this very room. You think you're making judgments about my sermon you think you're judging the truth of whether you believe it or not you're you're judging whether it's accurate whether it's exegetically true whether i should adhere to it or not adhere to it whether i should believe in christ whether i should not believe in christ whether i should follow through with baptism whether i should join the church whether i should do this whether i should do that i'm judging you're judging all that out and in reality what is happening is jesus is judging you he knows what you hear. He knows what you read. And he's judging your response to it. People leave the church. They go to the restaurant Sunday, for whatever purpose. I have no idea. They go to the restaurant and say, Well, I don't think he was accurate on that one Greek word. Well, great. Whoop dee doo. Come tell me where I get it right. You want to judge the sermon. But what did you do with the truth of it? Not long ago, I preached this message right here in John. If anyone would follow me, you must serve me. Yeah, Jesus judged your response. You're going to serve me, and you must follow me. You must die to yourself. You must put others before yourself. That's what was preached. You said in the church, you say amen, you say, amen. What, what was the response? Jesus said, I know what you heard. I know what you understood, and I know what you did, and this is my judgment upon you. See, we live in this world. You can't judge me. You can't judge me. You can't judge me. Jesus judges you every day. You don't know my heart. You don't know my heart. Jesus knows your heart. He knows your heart better than you know your heart. He knows all the secret things that are hidden there, and he's making judgments upon your life. What's his verdict for you? What's his verdict for me? I don't get a pass. You don't judge pastors. What do you do with the truth of the counsel that the Son of God gives? And how do you respond to it? You say, You know what? I'm just going to ease out right after the service is over. I'm going to smile. I'm going to shake a few hands. And I'm going to go back to my own business. Okay. Jesus is judging that response. You say, well, You know what? I don't think I'm putting the seriousness that I ought to put upon the things of God, upon the church of God. And I want to respond in humility and I want to give my life to be lived for the glory of God. Jesus is judging that response. What's the judgment he's making for me and for you in relation to the truths we hear week in and week out? Walk in the light while you have the light lest the darkness cease, overtake, and you be destroyed. There's a great responsibility that comes upon God's people when the Word of God is given them. Look, I, don't, I understand. I know there's some people, even in this church and churches around the world, we just want biblical preaching. I preach in churches all over the place. And everybody wants the preacher to preach the Bible. Everybody says the same thing. We want exposition. We want to know what the Word of God says. And After 20-something years of ministry, I'm, saying, I'm starting to think, do you really? Do you really want the Word of God? Because responsibility comes with the Word of God. How we respond. Brother Jeff, you come. Lead us in that song we had last week, I think.